The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, December 24th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. My name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I get the privilege of leading us this morning in the reading and teaching of God's Word. And this morning, we are going to wrap up our Advent series, our, our four vignettes from the book of Daniel, asking the question, how, how should God's people live now as, as resident aliens, strangers, so to speak, in a strange land? What's meant to mark us as God's people during this time between the Advents, between the coming of Christ and the return of Christ? Daniel chapter 4 is where we're going to wrap up this morning, and as we do, let me just give you a quick heads up while you're getting there regarding where we're going to go from here. Uh, Starting next week, so December 31st, uh, we are going to do another short little series, a, a series dealing with God's Word and the life of God's people. How does God's Word intersect with the life of God's people? How is God's word meant to inform and shape and transform the life of God's people. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to spend four weeks, starting next week, thinking about this and talking about this, and we're going to do it through the rhythm of the CBR journal. So we're going to talk about how God's word helps God's people adore him, how it brings us to confession, how it brings us to thanksgiving, how it works in us supplication. We're going to spend a week on each of those. So for those of you that want to join us and have not yet joined us in CBR reading, like Chris already told you, the journals are downstairs this morning. You can run and grab one afterwards. They'll be downstairs next week as well, because again, next week, it's going to be one service here, just like this morning as well. You can grab one next week and you can join us and we'll spend the month of January thinking about God's word and the life of his people. So I hope that's enough. All right, Daniel chapter 4. I'm watching a clock. I know it's Christmas Eve. I'll do the best I can. Um, Daniel chapter 4. Let's go to God's word together this morning. I'm going to continue the way that I have continued so far in this little series. We're going to read the bulk of the chapter and see what God has for us in it. So Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. Let's start it this way. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages... All peoples that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It's a perfect Advent message, isn't it? Peace is one of the primary themes of the Advent season in the life of God's people. And so here at the start of this chapter, we have King Nebuchadnezzar, a man that we have seen reflections of throughout the last three weeks in the book of Daniel, proclaiming peace to all peoples, nations, and languages. We hear throughout the New Testament, God's people continuing to proclaim peace. Grace and peace is one of Paul's most favorite greetings, one of the most favorite favorite benedictions in all of his letters. This peace is something that God intends for his people in this time, this time of resident alienship, this time of living as strangers in strange lands, this peace is meant to be something that marks God's people out during this time time. And so this morning, here's what we're going to try to do. We are going to try to look in Daniel chapter 4 for what you and I must realize, what we must know, what we must live out of in order to have 
and live in the fruit of this peace. And we're also going to consider in Daniel chapter 4, what makes this peace so elusive for so many? And dare I say, what makes this peace impossible for some? And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to do it in two parts. This morning is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do. All the same elements are there, but the order is going to be a bit different. So we're going to start going through Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to consider this piece, and we're going to start by considering what makes this piece so elusive. What makes this piece so impossible for some? And then here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a time of reflection. We do it every single week in responding to God's word, but we're going to do it in the middle of the sermon this morning. A time of reflection, then a time of response. And then at the, as we come back from that time of reflection, we're going to look at what it is we must know and live out of in order to have this peace that God means for his people to be marked out by. So when we go to confession, don't jump up, go get coffee, get your kids and go to the bathroom and think you're about to head out the door. That's just part one. There's two parts. Got to get all we can get in before the holiday season, all right? Two parts. Verse two, Daniel chapter four. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the most high God has done for me. Now, don't miss this. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking. I want you to realize as we get into Daniel chapter four, what you are listening to in Daniel chapter four is what we commonly call around here a grace story. This is a testimony. Nebuchadnezzar is talking here about what God has done in him how God has impacted him. He's going to talk in the first person in the beginning of the chapter, and he's going to talk in the first person at the end of the chapter. And in the middle, the writer, the narrator of the book of Daniel is going to fill in the gaps to help you see more specifically how God brought this man to this place. It seemed good to me, he said, to show you the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, verse 3. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So right there, the, the cat is out of the bag, so to speak. The answer to the question of what you and I must know, what we must internalize, what we must realize in order to have and live out this peace that God intends for his people, it's right here. The peace that God intends to mark his people comes from knowing who he is and who we are in his presence. It comes from knowing that he is God and we are not. That he is king and we are not. The peace that passes all understanding that we sing from childhood that we want down, down deep in our heart. It comes from knowing who God is and who we are in his presence. In fact, one of the greatest theologians in all of church history, John Calvin, began his institutes on the Christian religion this way. First sentence, nearly all of the wisdom that you and I possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, it all consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. This right knowledge is not just the source of wisdom. But as we'll see, it's the source of true peace. But to get there, we don't get a systematic theology. We get a story. We get the story of how God works this out in the life and in the heart of one man. And so remember, as we go through this part of Daniel chapter 4, we're moving now into flashback. 
Nebuchadnezzar stands up, he, he proclaims peace to all the peoples on the nations, all the nations on the faces of the earth. I want you to hear what God has done for me. And now we're going to go flashback. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. And as I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Nebuchadnezzar is here, as he says, at ease in his house and prospering in his palace. He is walking out onto the balconies of his palace and observing the kingdom that he is in charge of, one of the most magnificent kingdoms in all of human history. Two of the seven wonders of the world were part of his empire, the Ishtar Gate and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It wasn't just a giant metropolis that we might think of when we think of cities like London or or New York or Tokyo. This was a green space. He had done something with God's creation in the expansion of his empire that no one had done before him. This was an astounding place, and he is thinking about that, looking upon that. And on the outside, he knows himself to be a man of ease and prosperity and comfort. He's secure in his palace. But during the hours of sleepy darkness, even Nebuchadnezzar can't protect himself from his own heart. I had a dream. And the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And so the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, they all came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. So that should seem familiar to some of you if you've been with us in the series. This is not the first time that Nebuchadnezzar has been disturbed by a dream and called in all of his enchanters and magicians to help him understand it. The first time he challenged them to tell him the dream he had and the interpretation, this time he tells them the dream and he he looks for understanding. The peace that Nebuchadnezzar starts out proclaiming, at this point in his life, flashing back, it's not present in his heart. Why? What's making the peace so elusive? What's making the peace seem so impossible? That's what this first part of the chapter is going to help us see. Verse 8, he calls Daniel. He grabs Daniel. Tell me what this dream means. He tells Daniel the dream. He wants to understand the interpretation. And in verses 10 through 18, we, we hear the dream that he has had. And I want you to hear it this morning. Nebuchadnezzar said, I saw and, and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heavens, and it was as visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one came, and he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. 
Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. Verse 17, the sentence is the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that. All right, he's gonna tell you again one more time. What's the point of all of this? To the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Now, this is another sermon for an entirely different time, but just notice, even in exile, a stranger in a strange land, a, a resident alien, Daniel, who we've been looking at for the last few weeks, he genuinely cared for Nebuchadnezzar. What a lesson. He knew what this dream meant. And he knew what he was going to have to say to this man in front of him. And his heart hurt for him. Where does that kind of thing come from? Well, we'll get there. He's going to help him understand now. Verse 20. The tree that you saw, which became strong, so the top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It's you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. In some sense, we have an older Nebuchadnezzar now in his reign and in his life and the dream that he had had earlier in his kingship and in, when he, Daniel had first come into Babylon, the dream of the statue where he was made to see that his empire was the head of cold. It's, it's in a sense like that has now come to fulfillment. That's actually happened his empire is expansive. His empire is flourishing. He is in dominion over all of it. And though this dream seems to show that the dream in chapter 2 was being fulfilled in his empire, <clears throat> it proves to be an indictment on Nebuchadnezzar as well. Watch this, verse 23. <clears throat> because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you until the time that you know, one more time, 
that heaven rules. Now listen to Daniel's response to Nebuchadnezzar. And remember, at this point in Daniel chapter 4, this is still Nebuchadnezzar telling the story. He's still recounting first person what God has done to him. And he is going to share now in the story how Daniel responded to him in light of this dream and interpretation. It's as though he's, he's saying by sharing this, something in me is being exposed. Was I going to listen? Listen to what Daniel says. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Something was being shown to me. Something was being exposed. Was I going to listen? Now, starting in verse 28, verses 28, mostly through verses 33, it moves into the third person. The narrator, the writer of the book of Daniel is going to fill in the gaps between how Nebuchadnezzar starts and how he finishes in the chapter, where he's going to help us to see what makes this piece so elusive. What was Nebuchadnezzar failing to see and understand about his own heart? Verse 28, all of this <clears throat> came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. So a year has gone by now. From the time in which he had this vision, he had this dream, and he was disturbed by it, and Daniel came and gave him the interpretation of the dream, the fulfillment in some sense of what you've already seen in chapter 2 is, is true. Your empire is great. It is flourishing. You are the one overseeing all of it. But listen, king, you're going to get chopped down. Twelve months have gone by since Daniel gave him that interpretation and called him to some manner of a response. And in verse 30, we see what makes the peace that he starts the chapter proclaiming to all people in the face of the earth so elusive. And the king answered and said, Is this great Babylon, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, is not this great Babylon strolling out on the balconies of his palace, looking at everything that he can see as far as his eyes can wander, is not all of this that which I have built by my mighty power? Is it not something that I've done for the glory of my majesty? What makes true peace so elusive and even impossible at times for the human heart? It's pride. Pride is arguably the most deadly and evil of all sins because as we learn from the very beginning of the biblical story, it is the sin that is underneath and at the root of all other sins. In fact, this, this past week I was thinking about this sermon and thinking about this chapter and my house has been slowly filled with comic sections from the newspaper. We don't get the newspaper, but my kids needed the newspaper for some kind of school project and they discovered that the newspaper had comics in it. 
And so the same sections of comics have moved around our house for the last couple of weeks, and they've read them over and over and over again, and, and each one finding their favorite character. And as I was thinking about this week, I was reminded of something that I remember reading, not as a child, but as a young adult, in the Peanuts cartoons. There was one particular comic strip, and it ran on a Sunday in its original printing. And it was a strip from the Peanuts cartoons with Charlie Brown and Linus. And Charlie Brown and Linus were sitting outside of Charlie Brown's house on the steps going up to the front porch. And this is what it says. Linus is talking. And Linus says to Charlie Brown, when I get big, I'm going to be a humble little country doctor. I'll live in the city. And every morning I'll get up, I'll climb into my sports car, and I'll zoom out into the country, and then I'll start healing people. I'll heal people for miles around. And in the very last frame, it's a five-frame comic strip, Linus says this, I'll be a world-famous, humble little country doctor. (laughs) I mean, even for us, And our best efforts at humility. Pride is always lurking at the door. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. I'm not sure there is a more succinct place in the entire Bible that best sums up the two-stroke heartbeat of pride. Look at it in verse 30. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, I'm the cause I'm the reason. It was my intellect. It was my hard work. It was my wisdom. They were my decisions. It was my choice. Is not everything that you see associated to me and from me not because of me? It's by my power for the glory of my majesty. What drives pride? Glory. I did it all. I was smarter. I was a harder worker. I was more capable. I'm the one that made it happen. Therefore, I deserve it. I deserve everything that I'm getting. I deserve all the praise. One writer said, pride loves to think of itself as the source of great achievement and the recipient of great praise. By my power, for my own glory. That is the heartbeat of pride. Tim Keller does a fantastic job in trying to help clarify for God's people that it's this same pride, this same heartbeat of things that we can attribute to ourselves and from ourselves for our own glory. It's the same pride underneath in the heart of God's people, whether or not your life is going well or poorly. It's this same pride that makes peace so elusive for those whose life is going well or not. In fact, Keller said this in one of his books. He said, whether your life is going well or whether your life is going poorly, pride makes you look at life and say, I deserve more than I'm getting. I should be getting more than I have. I'm owed every bit of what you see, and I'm owed more than what I have already received underneath the surface, ultimately, pride claims to be the author of things that are actually gifts given to you by God. 
Said another way, ultimately pride working itself out in the heart is guilty of cosmic plagiarism. Pride refuses to admit that everything that you have, everything is a gift. That nothing that you have do you actually deserve. Pride refuses to admit that for every single breath you take, you are dependent upon the one who has created you. This is a message that God has been trying to get through to Nebuchadnezzar throughout the four chapters we've already seen. You may remember back in Daniel chapter 2, verse 37, dealt with another kind of dream Nebuchadnezzar had. Daniel said this to him, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. Into your hands, God has given you the stewardship of the dominion over all the mans on the earth and over all the beasts of the field. Everything that you have, everything that you see, everything that you are attributing to yourself, it has been given to you by someone else. And to admit that, though, to admit that everything that you have, everything that you've done is actually a gift. To own that and then live out of that is to let go of the control you think you have on your life. To live in that reality, to lose that control. Friends, that is the beginning of true peace. That's the beginning of pride's corollary. That's the beginning of humility. Humility and therefore true peace looks at everything that we have and looks at our entire life and says, I don't deserve this. If God actually gave me what I deserve, I would be lost. But look at this. And look at this. And look at this. And look at this. All these things. They're all gifts. Friends, what we see in Nebuchadnezzar and what we hear come out of his mouth in Daniel chapter 4, especially verse 30, helps us to understand that pride, it's a godlike dependence on yourself. I did it. I can do it. Therefore, I deserve it all. Pride is a godlike dependence on yourself. Humility, though. Humility is a childlike dependence on God. Humility serves the real foundation for true peace. And it's for this that Christ came into the world. I, I really believe the more that I've thought about it, thinking through Daniel chapter 4 and just pondering what we read in the Gospels from Jesus, that this childlike dependence upon God, this, this picture of real humility and, and this foundation for real peace is what Jesus was actually trying to communicate when he looked at his disciples as he held a child on his lap and said, unless you become like one of these little ones, a childlike dependence on God, not a God-like dependence on yourself. That's the opposite of what I'm looking for. A child-like dependence on me, Jesus said. Andrew Murray wrote a fantastic book called Humility, The, the Beauty of Holiness. And, and in that book, Andrew Murray writes, humility is the place of entire dependence on God. 
It is from the very nature of all things, the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature. It is the root of every true virtue. And so pride, or the loss of this humility, the loss of a childlike dependence on God, replaced with a godlike dependence on yourself. Murray said the loss of this humility, it's the root of every sin and every evil. Friends, pride makes peace elusive. Pride will make peace impossible for some. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to give you a moment to reflect. And as you take a couple of minutes to reflect, I I want you to to ask yourself a question. As you take a couple of minutes where you're seated, and, and like Nebuchadnezzar, take a quick survey of your life. We're coming to the end of a year. Look back on the year that you have had, and I want you to ask yourself honestly, and I want you to consider in your heart, whose power do you honestly think has established you? And if your heart was to be a reflection for all of us to see whose glory is your life being lived for. We're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect. We'll we'll sing and then we'll we'll come back and and we'll look at, at how God works in us, what's necessary for us to have and to live in this peace that's meant to mark us in this time. So take a couple of minutes and then we'll come back. God in his grace will very often take you where you do not want to go to get you to where you would never take yourself. I heard that about 10 years ago, and there aren't many weeks that go by that I don't reflect on it. God, in his grace, he will take you where you do not want to go, where you, want, where you need to go. He'll take you there. And he'll do it in ways that that you may never do yourself. Listen to the grace of God in the rest of the story. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Quite literally, God interrupted King Nebuchadnezzar. Fourteen times in chapter 4, the word heaven is used. It would make those who were hearing Daniel chapter 4 read to them, maybe think back to what they had heard through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 66 chapter 1, heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool, says the Lord. While Nebuchadnezzar is speaking, marveling at his own God-like production and glory, the one for whom heaven is his throne and earth, his footstool, interrupts. Verse 32, Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. I want you to listen here to the grace of God. 
This judgment that is coming upon Nebuchadnezzar is not just discipline for the sake of correction. It's redemptive in the hands of God as well. You're going to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of Ben and gives it to whomever he will. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and he ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. I love how John Piper writes of this. Piper says, what Daniel chapter four is describing for us is the pathway of a man from the pride of self to the praise of God through the valley of humiliation. That's the pathway, he says, that every person in the world must walk if he wants heaven and eternal life. It's the pathway from the pride of self, the God-like dependence of self, to the praise of the one true God through the valley of humiliation. In his grace, for his glory, and for our good, God will give you Daniels. God will give you dreams. God will use many means you may never imagine to walk you by the hand through the valley of humiliation. Why? That you may finally come to see who he really is and who you truly are in his presence. Because that is the source of true peace. That is the foundation of humility. Listen to Nebuchadnezzar. Now we're back in first person. Nebuchadnezzar is back now speaking again to all the people that he is proclaiming peace to. Verse 34, at the end of the days, when the time had come, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and I honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing including me. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. That's how John Calvin followed up his first sentence in his institutes. Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. Our pride is never fully dealt with until we're willing to look upon God. I, Nebuchadnezzar, chewing grass, clawing in the field, wet with the dew of heaven, I lifted my eyes to heaven, to the one for whom heaven is his throne, and earth is simply his footstool. And when I lifted my eyes, my reason returned to me. 
Much like the story of the prodigal son so many of us are familiar with, God will work in you to get you to the place to literally bring you to your senses. And the best way of understanding what it means to be brought to your senses, to your right senses, to your right reason by God is to finally get to the place where you understand and see him for who he really is and who you truly are in his presence. Our humility is directly related to our view of God's majesty. Our view of God's greatness, our view of his power, and our view of his glory. What we're meant to see amongst so many things, but what we're meant to see as we go through this in Daniel chapter 4 is that this peace, true peace that passes all understanding, this peace and real humility comes from knowing who God is, knowing that he alone is sovereign. That he alone is the one true king. Knowing that everything that we are and that everything that we have and that everything that we can look out upon, it's simply been given to us as a gift. Coming to your senses starts by recognizing the majesty and the glory of the one true God. The one Nebuchadnezzar said, for whose dominion is everlasting, whose kingdom endures from generation to generation, the one to whom no one can stay his hand. No one can stop him. No one can rightfully look at him and say, what have you done? Peace and humility, they come from knowing who God is, but not just that from knowing who you are in his presence. You're not him. You're not him. Peace, humility, they're born out of recognizing who he rightly is. God's people are meant to be marked by this peace and by this humility. And we need to understand that this peace and this humility, it doesn't get produced in our hearts and in our lives by simply ordering a collection of knowledge about him. You can all walk out of here this morning and repeat for anyone that asks you the question of where true peace and where true humility comes from. You can say from knowing who God is and who I am in his presence. And you can tell me that God is sovereign and that you're not, and that he's king and that you're not. But this kind of peace and this kind of humility, it doesn't come from the kind of knowledge that can write things down on paper. It's not simply knowledge that we can collect as information. The kind of knowledge that we need that produces this peace that is so elusive because of our pride and, and the humility that's been to mark God's people, it comes from these things, the knowledge of God's glory and the knowledge of ourselves in his presence. It comes from those things being real to your heart. It's entirely different to know something with your mind and for something to be real and true to your heart. One writer said that the main difference between a Christian and what he would call a nominal believer 
is that the truth has become spiritually real to the heart of a Christian. The main difference between a growing Christian, he said, and a stagnant Christian is that this truth is refreshed regularly to the growing Christian. Nasty things our parents or our friends may have said to us 20 years ago are still on video in our soul, but God's promises are only on audio. Our hearts can hold on forever to the reality of being insulted or rejected or being a failure, but we fail to be able to remember being assured, comforted, and even humbled by God. He said this is the fundamental problem of living in this world. The less real becomes very real to us. And the more real becomes unreal. Friends like Nebuchadnezzar, who saw and experienced so many things at the hands of the one true God prior to what we read about in chapter 4, we all can find ourselves failing to remember, not just in our mind, but the stirring refreshment and vitality of the truth of the glory and grace of God in our heart. We can all, as we've talked about in previous weeks, fall prey to that kind of spiritual amnesia where we forget. And the less real becomes more real to our hearts. And that which is truly, ultimately, and definingly real becomes less real. This is why in God's grace, he has given us so many means to keep his presence, to keep his glory real to us and before us. You realize that who he is and who we are in his presence, they're meant to be stirred to fresh reality through the means of ordinary faithfulness. As we engage with God through his word, together, as we engage and and we follow along like we do with CBR, we're reminded daily as we listen to his word and he reminds us again of who he is, what it is about him that we're meant to adore, what makes him who he is. And we're reminded again of who we are in his presence and the gratitude and the joy and the thankfulness for his grace begins to spill out and mark our days and the reality is refreshed. It's renewed in the heart. We're not finding ourselves stagnant and what happens is the real becomes vital to us and that which is less real, it gets put in its proper place. It's the ordinary means of faithfulness that God has given us that he intends to stir the freshness of who he is in our hearts. It's why we gather together every single week with his people. As his word is read, as the truth is proclaimed, as we hear one another with our voices, as we sing, proclaim the truth to one another, the reality of who God is is stirred. Every single week is We respond to God's word together by remembering him as we receive communion. We're stirred afresh again with who he really is and who we are in his presence. We're reminded tangibly, physically, visibly of his holiness. We're given one more look at our sin and one more look at his mercy And one more moment to proclaim our gratitude to his mercy for us. 
through the blood of his son that heals us and cleanses us, through the work of his grace that puts to death this pride that wants to grow in our hearts. It's through the ordinary means of faithfulness as we listen to him and worship him through his word, as we worship him together with his people, responding to his grace together. And then as we go about our week witnessing of his glory and of his grace to one another. That's why the writer of Hebrews chapter 3 will say we need each other daily, lest we get hardened by sin. As the writer I read a minute ago says, lest we become stagnant in our hearts. And that which is truly real, the glory of God and the grace of God and who we are in his presence gets less real to us. We need one another for the truth to be stirred and refreshed. And God has given us what we need to live in the reality of who he is and what he's done for us. It's the ordinary means of faithfulness. Friends, one pastor 150 years ago, writing about Daniel chapter 4, said this text teaches us that the opposite of man's pride, confidence in man's strength, is praise for God's glory and sovereignty. He said the only person who does justice to the sovereignty of God is the person who sings about it. He said that's the point of verse 34. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him. He said, watch out for a person who wants to talk about the sovereignty of God but has no song in his heart. The biblical opposite of pride is not pondering the sovereignty of God but praising the sovereignty of God, delighting in it and resting upon it. And it's to that end that we now get the privilege as God has brought it before us of responding to His Word together and praising together his glory, his sovereignty, and his grace. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond together as we receive communion, again, being reminded of our sin, being reminded of his mercy, being reminded of his grace through his son. So let me pray, and then we'll respond together as a family. Heavenly Father, as we... As we prepare to take the bread and dip it in the cup, we, we pray that you would give us that one last look at our sin, that one last look at our pride, and that one more look at your mercy and your grace through your Son that heals us of our pride. We'll be honest this morning as we come to the end of the year, Lord, there are many of us right now who are experiencing the kind of difficulties that that come from being so absorbed in ourself, so caught up in comparing ourselves to others, so easily having the feelings of our heart hurt. Lord, help us to see this morning that all of our life is a gift. Help us to see that even our troubles in your hands are part of your mercy. Help us to see that all that you have given us, all that we possess, it's, it's all gift. And help us to have the kind of joy the generosity of spirit and the confidence that comes from knowing that, that we don't belong to ourselves, that we belong to you. Help us to know that again this morning as we come and take the bread and dip it in the cup. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.